0: welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. I'm your host Hannah Chapman. And I am your host Lauren Burke. And this week we are taking you on a literary ghost tour to celebrate Lauren's favorite holiday, Halloween. That's right.
1: (laughs) Much to (laughs) Hannah's dismay, we are going to be sharing some spooky reads and talking about haunted literary sites, and ghost writers, And by that, I mean writers who become ghosts and not like actual ghostwriters.
0: No, those are a real thing. Carol from The Real Housewives of New York did not have one, but they are a real thing for other people. Right, correct.
1: Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I can't verify that Carol did or did not have a ghostwriter, but, you know, who knows?
0: I'm who team knows? Carol on that one. <laughs> I haven't read any of epics. books. So I'm so,
1: <laughs> sorry, Carol. So um, shall we jump into our very first haunting? Because this one is one of my favorite, like, just things to talk about in general and definitely one of my favorite literary anecdotes. And you can find a great account of it in the bad recommended book entitled A Secret Sisterhood. The Literary Friendships of Jane Austen, Charlotte Bronte, George Eliot, and Virginia Woolf by Emma Claire Sweeney and Emily Midorikawa. Of course, I am talking about the time that Charlotte Bronte visited Harriet Beecher Stowe from beyond the grave at a seance. But let's go ahead and work up to that a bit. Hannah, can you give this story a little bit of context?
0: So regular Bonnets listeners will know that Lauren is obsessed with the fact that Harriet Beecher Stowe and George Eliot were transatlantic pen pals for 10 years. The relationship began in 1869 when Beecher Stowe fired off a letter that began with, My dear friend. Stowe was 59 at the time and Eliot was 49. Both were well established in their careers and were aware of each other's writing. Elliot had even given Stowe's novel Dread a favourable write-up in the Westminster Review. They had mutual acquaintances, including Addie Adams Fields and Eliza Folian. In fact, Elliot recalled seeing Stowe's letter to Folian in 1856, where she describes herself as a little bit of a woman, rather more than 40, as withered and as dry as a pinch of snuff. Never very well worth looking at at my best days, and now decidedly, Used and now a decidedly used up particle. Elliot says of this letter, it is most fascinating and makes one love her. It's kind of cute. It's kind of an interesting little meet cute that they have via letters. So I think it's like a good intro. My dear friend. Yeah. My dear friend. That's how I recommend you slide into someone's DMs.
1: My dear friend, we've been sort of reading about each other and books and other people's letters now I'm sliding into are you interested
0: in working from home and making (laughs) thousands every month my dear friend
1: I've been trying to reach you about your car's warranty (laughs) getting that one like every day I swear to god So now I don't want to derail us too much, but I am just totally going to take us off course for a minute to say that I think that Annie Adams Fields might be the new Harriet Beecher Stowe. So Harriet Beecher Stowe has been haunting this program for years by popping up in the background in the lives of many, many literary figures like Byron, Louisa May Alcott. I mean, just like you name it. They have a Harriet Beecher Stowe connection. Same deal with Annie Adams Fields. First of all, she was married to James T. Fields, who was the editor of the Atlantic, and I believe you referred to him as that fucking Fields in our episode yeah. on Louisa May Alcott's "How <laughs> I Went Into Service" because he told Alcott to stick to teaching instead of writing. That fucking Fields. All right, that I it think is about rude. it every time I, I read his uh, <laughs> his name, which is a lot because he comes up all the time. Um. Annie and Louisa were actually cousins, and they were roommates for a little bit. And Annie was also a writer and editor in her own right, and she was friends with Willa Cather, Lydia Maria Child, Charles Dickens, Mark Twain, Mary Wilkins Freeman, and was especially close to Sarah orange Jewett, who she lived with following the death of her husband, sort of Boston marriage style.
0: Uh, I will say... As interesting as all of this is, Lauren, uh, there are no ghosts. And it's meant to be a Halloween episode. And like, I'm chill with it not being ghosts. But why yes. are we dressing it up as a pumpkin? If not sure. for... I yeah. just had to get that I'll out there. I'll give you jump scares. <laughs> I, want, like, I want Emily to burst out of Charlotte's chest and then like, Anne's floating on the ceiling. Wow. You know? Okay.
1: You're down for some ghosts today. Okay. All right. So back to the topic at hand. So Harriet Beecher Stowe and George Eliot are writing these letters to each other that are so full of mutual admiration. They talk about literary criticism, money, religion, family, all kinds of good stuff. And perhaps surprisingly for two women with such different writing styles and lives, like these two actually really get on and see eye to eye on quite a few things. Except one, and that is spiritualism. So Harriet had become quite fixated on the supernatural after the death of her son, Henry, and became a regular at seances, hoping to get in conversation with that guy.
0: Uh, George Eliot was not a fan of seances. Fun fact, in 1874, she was invited to a seance by Charles Darwin's niece, but decided to skip the action and just chill outside with Charles Darwin, where they rolled their eyes at the whole affair. But, Lauren, Hmm. I've learned something new about George Eliot. What? When George Henry Lewis died, she felt his presence after he died and thought that she'd seen him.
1: Ah, Interesting
0: yeah all right anyway oh wow well, according to this that right. i've just like read this week so full i am like full of george Eliot. i like it ready to go
1: i like it <laughs> maybe she you know maybe like Harriet beecher stowe had a little bit of influence
0: on her after all i feel like you can believe i i george Eliot is not the sort of person who's going to want to join the club of spiritualism mm-hmm Right? So just because she wasn't a fan of, like, these group seances or any of that stuff doesn't mean she didn't believe in presences. But she had to be edgy about it, because mm-hmm. George Eliot is the original edge lord. It's true. You know, I
1: always say that George Eliot was too cool for school. Too um, cool. So anyway, Beecher Stowe's second letter to George in 1869 was uh, really interesting, to say the least. In that letter, she confesses that her husband, Calvin Stowe, who they often refer Calvin to the as Calvin, the Calvinist, <laughs> and they refer to him often as the professor. She confesses that Calvin had various transactions with the spirit world mm-hmm. and was something of a medium. And she also said that she has an acquaintance with a cool headed, clear minded woman who has been contacted by Bronte doesn't specify which one in this letter, I think, <laughs> via a Ouija board. Even though the friend had never read a Bronte novel and was like fairly unfamiliar with all of them, she still managed to provide a bunch of details about their lives and write poetry in the style of the Brontes.
0: So then, and that's before Google. So that I mean, it's pretty impressive. I mediums, mean, I guess she they could have gotten. Money. <laughs>
1: We did. I mean, I guess she could have gotten her hands on a copy of Gaskell's The Life of Charlotte Bronte, right? But she's yeah, saying she, pro- she she didn't know. She's saying she had no idea. So a few years later in May of eighteen seventy two, Beecher Stowe writes to Elliot that she has found a medium who has been visited by Bronte, Charlotte, I'm guessing this time, several times, even though she was also unfamiliar And quote unquote, unsympathetic to her work. Seems interesting. Charlotte's just like just visiting a bunch of mediums. All of them are Mm. like, we don't know you. Who are you? (laughs) Beecher Stowe convinced this woman to hold a seance. And this is what she has to say about that encounter
0: I adopted this theory. The only way to make a really philosophic experiment is to put yourself in the exact condition of mind demanded by the investigation. I have a happy faculty of being able to assume a truth and act in the state of mind resulting from such an assumption. Ah, loads of people can do that. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) everyone's doing that. I assumed that I was talking with Charlotte Bronte and the conversation lasted two hours. I was asking questions, the planchette replying on paper, the conversation thus brought out I copied and still preserve. It is a most singular piece of literature.
1: So I am so sorry to say that we do not have this paper. Question mark? (laughs) Can you believe it? it. Someone Someone hopefully
0: someone has that. Some like (sighs) I hope it was like a national treasure spin-off.
1: Yes. Yes, I'm ready. I am ready to go
0: find it, honestly. I'm just going to drink this drink as if I've never recorded before.
1: Sorry. (laughs) Uh, I would pay good money to see a transcript of Harriet Beecher Stowe's conversation with Ghost Charlotte. But um, yeah, it was lost or hidden or perhaps Destroyed by Stowe's son, who took charge of sort of shaping her legacy by writing one of her earliest bios.
0: If you're sorting through your mum, your recently deceased mum's paperwork, and you're like, okay, keep, toss, keep, like, oh, this is the bit of paper that the medium who was pretending she was Charlotte Bronte
1: (laughs) wrote. Oh my god,
0: what pile is that going on? (laughs) I mean, yeah, right.
1: Like unsurprisingly, he did a lot of selective publishing mm. of her letters and papers. So even today, like most of her papers are actually still tucked away in an archive unpublished, including a lot of her correspondence with George Eliot. Um, Stowe's son and Annie Adams Fields, who was also an early Stowe biographer, sort of skirted around her interest in spiritualism a bit, which mm. is kind of a shame because I would read an entire book of like seance conversations transcribed by Harriet Beecher Stowe. That That is a book
0: I'm desperate to see. To write it. Get Charlotte Bronte's ghost to write it. <laughs> be great.
1: Stowe does give a brief summary of the seance to Elliot, describing Charlotte as... Careful, keen, witty, wise, pensive, with a profound sense of past life suffering. Charlotte gives a striking description of Emily, declines to answer certain questions, says that she's not in heaven but in its antechamber with Thackeray, and most importantly, I think, is still upset with critics that found her work coarse.
0: So Elliot responds by saying your experience with the planchette is amazing but that the words you have found it to have written were dictated by the spirit of Charlotte Bronte is to me whether rightly or not so enormously improbable that I could only accept it if every condition were laid bare and every other explanation demonstrated to be impossible. If it were another spirit aping Charlotte Bronte, Branwell if here and there at rare spots and among people of a certain temperament or even at many spots and among people of all temperaments tricksy spirits are liable to arise oh she does believe in spirits tricksy spirits are liable to arise as a sort of earth earth bubbles and set furniture in movement and tell things which we either know already or should be as well without knowing i must frankly confess that i have a feeble interest in these doings feeling my life very short for the supreme and awful revelations of a more orderly and intelligible kind, which I shall die with an imperfect knowledge of. If there were miserable spirits whom we could help, then I think we should pause and have- she's so boring- I think we should pause and have patience of their trivial mindedness, but otherwise I don't feel bound to study them more than I am bound to study the special follies of a particular phase of human society. So she's like, I believe I I believe in spirits enough that my first my first point is what if it's someone else? <laughs> <laughs> she's like, Cool, spirit, I'm in, but what if it's just someone, if it's else? someone else? Like that's yeah. annoying. And Fair also point. also, if we are gonna be talking to these spirits and I don't I don't think we should, at these seances sound too fun too much is going on we should just be talking to the sad ones yeah let's just talk to the sad Come spirits on. just like chill out for just five minutes like also it take does sound day like off.
1: charlotte was a sad spirit yeah she has some unresolved business with her critics man that really felt like a revelation
0: Uh, Elliot politely suggested the reason spiritualism was becoming so popular in the States was because of the civil war and the collective outpouring of grief that the country was experiencing. But it was kind of a thank you, fuck you, because she went on to say that spirit communications by rapping... Grimes fine, but wrapping <laughs> out the question. Uh, guidance of the pencil, etc., seemed to be degrading folly, imbecile in the estimate of evidence, or else as impudent posture, but that because she respected Harriet Beecher Stowe, she would read anything more she had to say on the subject. And listen, in the past I might have said I was Team Elliot on this one. I no, that it's not real. <laughs> because she's like in the middle I'm like I'm the opposite end of the spectrum to Harriet would you just say that Harriet I'm
1: not I don't want to hear anything else you have to say on the subject is that what I would would say
0: I would say Harriet hook me up with your medium because I would love to know how they got all of this information without Google you're living in a pre-Google age and I think they deserve a tip They've clearly worked really hard. <laughs> they're doing they're doing great work. I just think they should, like, that's the thing. Like, their yeah. skill is investigation.
1: You know, I'm team Beecher Stowe on this one, but that's only because I just think it's really funny that Charlotte came through to complain about things. <laughs> like, I think that that's pretty great, and I want to believe in that more than anything. <laughs> and also, uh, what makes it extra interesting is, Is that like, hey, did Charlotte know that Harriet was pen pals with Elliot, who was partners with George Henry Lewis, who was the literary critic who used to write letters to Charlotte? Mm. And she regarded him as a friend until he gave an unfavorable review to Shirley. And I just feel like she had to reach out from the afterlife to let him know that, like, that was not cool.
0: Now, speaking of the Brontes and the afterlife, Lauren... Would you like to tell us all about your favorite newspaper headline? Yes. Hannah, I would be happy to.
1: So there is an image of a newspaper clipping that will just like forever live on my desktop. And the headline reads, Ghost of Anne Bronte is haunting old staircase. Great (laughs) headline. Um, The article appeared in the Independent Record on September 4th, 1966. And I'm going to go ahead and read you a few paragraphs from it. So it says,
0: this is the whole article.
1: It's not. Actually, the article (laughs) is like way longer.
0: (laughs) I know. This is as long as this article needs
1: to be. It's I I know. (laughs) Everybody knows, of course, that if you've got a very old house or a falling down castle, who has a falling down castle? A lot of people, it just like seems like it, it, it's supposing that a lot of people have falling down castles. Anyway, you might very well have a ghost in it. But what if you've got a relatively new house and you have a ghost in it? And what if that ghost is only on the stairs? Well, that is what Mrs. Gladys Topping has here at Sanderling, her home on Long Island. Now, let me explain. There's nothing kooky about Mrs. Topping. She's the widow of Alan S. Topping, a gentleman who built a large and prosperous industrial hardware firm, Topping Brothers in Manhattan. And it's Gladys herself who now runs the business. She's also a real estate broker on Long Island. And in her spare time, she judges horse shows. And I think she also was like a former opera singer as well. Interesting lady, Gladys. (laughs) but Gladys definitely has a ghost in her house. And this ghost is a lady who goes up and down the beautiful Queen Anne staircase that Gladys has installed in her new house. The ghost doesn't seem to go anywhere else in the house and Gladys believes that she acquired it with the staircase when she bought it in England. Here's the story. In 1858, Gladys and her husband were in London to attend the Kensington Antiques Fair. They were looking for mantelpieces corner cupboards, chandeliers, and such to put in their house, which had been built in 1954. You know, said one dealer, you really ought to buy my Queen Anne staircase and have it put in your home. It's hand carved and made entirely of burled yew, which, as you know, is very rare. So this staircase has quite a history. So the toppings drove 50 miles to the dealer's warehouse, fell in love with the staircase, and bought it. It had come from a stately 18th century mansion called Blake Hall in Meerfield, which had been dismantled in 1954, with and with everything, it was put up for auction. It was in Muirfield, which is on the road from Dewsbury to Huddersfield, Yorkshire, that the three Bronte sisters once lived and went to school. And Anne Bronte served as governess for three years at Blake Hall, where she wrote hymns and composed much of her story, Agnes Grey. So what do you think about this one, Hannah? It wasn't Anne
0: Bronte. It was Branwell. <laughs> On the stairs? On the stairs. Yeah, one hundred. Wow, wow. It's always, it's always Branwell. The only one I believe would come back.
1: <laughs> I, um... Don't know why it would be Anne haunting those particular stairs. Like, why is it not some other, you know, random Victorian person? A different servant. Because it's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> I still, based on this story, I have outlined a middle grade novel about this. It's just about Anne Bronte haunting a staircase. I don't know if anyone yeah. would ever be interested in such a thing, but I have it in my Google Docs. <laughs> <laughs> on a very interesting and related note. There is a great poem about ghost Brontes hanging out on the stairs. And I have to like wonder if it was somehow buried in Gladys Topping's subconscious. Mm. This poem is by Harriet Prescott Spofford and was brought to my attention by our dear friend, Dr. Amber Poliot. Now, Harriet Prescott Spofford was an American writer born in 1835, she wrote novels, poems, biographies, literary criticism, and ran in some pretty distinguished literary circles. Hannah, can you just guess who she was acquainted with?
0: Can I? Is it Harriet Beecher Stowe? <laughs> For a second, I, mean, I was like, "Oh, there's no the answer, isn't there?" And I was like, "Oh, I figured it out. It's probably it's is probably it her? her. Was yeah, it her? Yeah, yeah. And I
1: believe she knew yeah. Annie Adams Fields as well. So, yeah, everybody knew everyone." <laughs>
0: I wish I'd brought up like a little whiskey up here to...
1: I know, do a shot. One. Yeah. Take a shot every time you hear Harriet Beecher Stowe and
0: Annie Adams Fields. No, you should have to like do something embarrassing when it's... When it's know. Annie. You, should, you have to do a truth and it doesn't matter who you're with or where you're listening to this podcast. But when you hear that name, you just blur out like one true thing about yourself. Oh, God. Some deeply deeply buried truth and just say it. Do you want to start? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I lie about not liking fish. I wrote a poem about it. Oh, that's a Okay, <laughs> that's pretty good.
1: <laughs> Laura? <laughs> I don't know. I'm a nervous driver. That's a really bad one. Oh, no, that's okay. That's interesting. I'm quite nervous. Quite nervous. I dri- I drive very slowly. Always the speed limit. There's lots of red light yeah. cams around where I live though so that's my defense so (laughs) Hannah would you like to do me a big old favor and read some of this poem by Harriet Prescott Spofford it's really really long and I did not transcribe the whole thing because I was like oh this is too long to read on the podcast but I do think that this edited version will give you sort of an idea of what uh, this poem is about it's clever I love it
0: actually Uh, so this poem is called Bronte and if you're a fan of British obscure British children's television if you're a fan of British television show for kids I want you to imagine bananas in pyjamas while listening to this poem because it's what it's making me think of there are two ghosts upon the stair one is so slender and so fair the grave light fates upon her hair and falls and follows as she stirs with old grace that was once hers. Stirs on that chill and furtive breath blown from the frozen halls of death. A dream, a film, along the air there are two ghosts upon the stair. Out on the high brow of the moor night lifting all her clear obscure morn with primal tides washed pure while skies and larks together soar and the rhyme glimmers fresh and hoar out in the glorious golden weather knee-deep and lost in plumy heather in lonely space from law to law there are two ghosts upon the moor there are two ghosts upon the stair long since far and spread his splendid snare love came and camped about her there oh love was sweet and love was dear but hark those voices strong and clear they wail they thrill she must not stay out to the open and away Oh love past death and death's despair There are three ghosts upon the stair. I did not like reading that last line (laughs) I love the last line of the poem that's my favourite bit. I hated it it honestly made me feel a bit sick I was like there's three now
1: Now there's three Yeah That is a They come take Charlotte
0: Imagine like eight children reading that in unison at you (laughs) So, Ooh. speaking of uh,
1: poetry and death and the Brontes, Emily Dickinson, who was actually a big old fan of Harriet Prescott Spofford, also wrote a poem called "Charlotte Bronte's Grave," which I will now butcher. How about that? Okay. Since that that yeah. makes it fair, right? That balances out the podcast episode. Mm-hmm. Here we go. All overgrown by cunning moss and interspersed with weed, the little cage of Currer Bell, in quiet Howarth laid, this bird observing others, when frost too sharp became, retired to other latitudes, quietly did the same. But differed in returning, since Yorkshire hills are green, yet not all the nests I meet can Nightingale be seen. Gathered from many wanderings, Gethsemane can tell, through what transporting anguish she reached the Asphodel. Soft fall the sounds of Eden upon her puzzled ear. Oh, what an afternoon for heaven when Bronte entered here. Oh, shoot. When Bronte entered there. <laughs> anyway. So, um, yeah, Emily, big old fan. And also had um, Emily Bronte's no coward soul is mine read at her funeral just fun fact for you there
0: hannah her face i wish you guys listeners could see hannah's face she's just like not impressed can you hear the motorcycle rally that is just going on outside no oh like 50 motorbikes just oh i just can't believe it it's saturday afternoon so I know the Bronzes have been dominating this episode, but they are not the only Victorian ghostwriters popping up in strange places, because apparently Elizabeth Barrett Browning has been spotted in Texas.
1: That is correct. Baylor University in Waco, Texas, is home to a research library and museum that is dedicated to the poets Elizabeth Barrett Browning and Robert Browning. The museum has some of the Browning's original manuscripts, as well as some of their jewelry, furniture, photos, letters, and even locks of their hair. Legend has it that Elizabeth has been seen roaming the halls at night, probably wondering what all her stuff is
0: doing in Texas, is my guess. (laughs) And maybe that's what Louisa May Alcott is doing, because there's rumors that she's been haunting Orchard House. Except... She's from there. She's, so from like, there. she's not going to be curious about it. Like, oh, why is there no. stuff in my head? She might be surprised her stuff is still there. That's true. Like, That's true. I hate this couch. <laughs> why haven't why is this? Why is Remodel this all shit place. still here? What did I earn all that money for? Jeez. <laughs> so in 2019, Greta Gerwig and Laura Dern told Oprah Magazine that they felt the spirit of Louisa May Alcott in Concord during the filming of Little Women. It's a pretty innocuous statement but Dern elaborated and she would and said (laughs) and said what's incredible about being in Concord is that you'll say in this shy way I sort of feel the spirit of Louisa and locals will say oh yeah that's haunted we see her all the time she walks with the girls all the time. And that story inspired a journalist from Vulture magazine to head over to Orchard House with a psychic to see if she could talk to Louisa. And instead, she faced off with executive director Jan Turnquist, who is a past bonnets at dawn guest, who was completely sceptical and kind of just knocked down, which is how I would have been, honestly. <laughs> but then they like bring her around. Yeah, they kind of do. It's interesting. So, It's a good read. But spoiler alert, they did not find conclusive, obviously, spoiler, they didn't find (laughs) conclusive evidence that Orchard House is haunted. Wow. Uh, But Jan and the psychic do have a moment when the psychic tells her that Louisa is concerned about all the structural work that needs to happen to keep the house in order. And there's a really good bit about wallpaper. It's very funny. You should read it.
1: Yeah, read that on Vulture.com. I will put a link up In our Facebook group and on Twitter, but um, I believe Vulture's like behind a paywall now. So, oh. So, I do believe that the spirit of Louisa May Alcott looms large in Concord, just like the spirit of Agatha Christie looms over my favorite place ever, Torquay. (laughs) Like Concord, Torquay does a great job of sort of keeping that literary legacy alive. Because you know they have a festival, they have that poison garden, and they have just Agatha plaques everywhere. There's like a whole walk you can do, actually. Like here is where Agatha used to roller skate. I think that literally is a flag. Actually,
0: <laughs> it's the only thing. It's the only thing that Torquay has going for it. That and the sign that says British Riviera.
1: Listen, I thought the views were spectacular from my hotel room that had a plaque that said, this is where Agatha Christie spent her honeymoon. (laughs) So Agatha's ghost has been spotted haunting the Torquay Museum, which has a considerable amount of Christie memorabilia. So kind of like that library in in Texas with all of Barrett Browning stuff. According to employees, she has been spotted in the gift shop, hurling first editions of her own books at visitors. Now, the manager of the museum even caught her on CCTV. And um, I wish that this was actually video because I would show you
0: this picture. It's amazing. Put Put it on the socials. I will put it on the socials for sure. We'll segue really well to it at the end of the show. Don't worry, guys. I'll remind you that it's on socials at the end. So
1: while we're talking about Agatha Christie, I do want to mention one of my favorite literary mysteries of all time, which is that time that Agatha went missing for 11 days, sparking a national manhunt. Now, someday... I'm hoping that we'll do a whole episode on it. But in a nutshell, Agatha left her Surrey home on December 3rd, 1926. Her car was found near a chalk pit the next day. And the press went absolutely wild. The police suspected her cheating husband of murder. And um, as you will see in like some newspaper headlines that I will also share on socials, a bunch of psychics actually suspected that she had drowned herself in a nearby pond. All of the headlines about this were just like wild and salacious. One detail I love most about the story, though, is that Arthur Conan Doyle joined in on the search by taking one of Christie's gloves to a medium to help locate her. The medium was completely unhelpful. But when Dorothy Sayers got wind of this, she just like went to Arthur Conan Doyle and was like, look, You should stay out of it. I think that this is, like, personal business.
0: Mm. Yeah. And an interesting fact about old old Conan Doyle, old Coney D, he needs a better (laughs) nickname than that. ACD. ACDC. There we go. Uh, Is that he was also really into spiritualism. And we know that because, uh, does anyone else remember the 90s film about the fairies? I believe it's called like fairies or Arthur Conan Doyle's fairies or <laughs> the Fairy Is it the fairy tale? I think it might be the fairy tale and it's all like separate words. Um, And he was this member of a paranormal research and investigation organisation known as the Ghost Club and uh one of Lauren's favorite ever people uh o c d Charles Dickens <laughs> uh he was also a founding member, so yeah, and Dickens like loved ghost stories, we know this. But he was something of a skeptic in real life, and he used the Ghost Club to debunk hauntings and those who claimed to have magical powers, including the touring magicians, the Davenport brothers, who claimed to have supernatural help with their act. Can I? I would love to. We could do a two-women show where I I'm playing Charles Dickens and you're playing Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. <laughs> that'd, that'd be do, great. Go, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'd be we'll up just for do that. it one time, and it's all improv. So in April of 1870, Dickens began publishing The Mystery of Edwin Drood in installments. And just a few months later, in the June of 1870, Dickens just dies right in the middle of the book. He was really secretive, so there were no notes or plans to how the story should end. And everyone was super pissed about this. And so just loads of people were like, we're going to attempt to finish this, including at uh, this American publisher called Thomas Power James. In 1873, James attended a seance where he was contacted by the ghost of Charles Dickens, allegedly. We'll see. <laughs> allegedly. Who asked him to complete. <laughs> I sound like Erica Jane. Allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> who asked him to complete the remaining chapters of Edwin Jude. Drood, and Ghost Dickens, GD, because I'm going to give them all the initials, <laughs> GD, uh, and James collaborated for the next several months. With Dickens just leaving these encouraging notes for James whenever he was flagging or losing special in uh, or losing interest in the project, and James's landlady was so impressed by the whole thing, the setup, what he had going on up there, that she <laughs> actually just let him live there rent free while he was working on the book. So Arthur Conan Doyle, who I shall dub the male HBS, actually investigated and defended the Thomas James version of Edwin Drood when it was published.
1: I wanna know more about the investigation that Arthur Conan Doyle did like to defend the book. I just feel like he read it and was like, sounds like Dickens, good enough for me. I love it. That's like my favorite Dickens story, I have to say. And I actually also buy it. Like, I do feel like Dickens was determined enough to come back from the grave to, like, have someone finish his book. It makes sense to me. Listen, it lines up. It's like the Charlotte Bronte story. It makes
0: sense. This is why John won't give you $5 to look at the unicorn. Like, this is why. (sighs) I know. So just to explain (laughs) to the listeners, um,
1: at the (laughs) Bristol Ren Fair, there is a unicorn... But it's in like an enclosed stable, and you have to pay $5 to go in and look at the unicorn. And no one ever lets me pay $5 to
0: look at the unicorn. Everyone's like, no, Lauren, we're moving on. We're moving caveat on. Caveat to your caveat that's, uh, it's in Wisconsin. It's not in Bristol, England, where I live. It's not like the Bristol Renfair, but they do recreate. It is called the Bristol Renfair, however. They are specifically recreating the Bristol I live in, yes. but in the 15th century in Wisconsin. It's the only run fair I've been to and it is very good.
1: So last but not least we are going to talk about some spooky books today. Now we asked for your recommendations on Insta and Facebook and as always you guys delivered. So if you are looking for some more books to buy I'm sure you are. Listen
0: up. Ashley and Jill recommended American Ghost by Hannah Nordhaus which is this combo of memoir history paranormal and detective story right yeah sounds like you'd like you'd enjoy that sounds like a lot of things that i would be really into so here's a short description journalist nordhaus embarks on a ghost hunt for her great-great-grandmother german immigrant julia schuster staub in this unique collision of family history wild west adventure and ghost story Since the 1970s, the Grand La Posada Hotel in Santa Fe has been subject to sightings of a ghost resembling Juliet who lived there with her husband Abraham and their seven children in the late 19th century. Nordhaus, who comes from a long line of sceptics, decides to investigate these rumours i
1: think you would like this book actually that's i think i would
0: like it but i believe my guess is that at the end this person believes in ghosts and i just i'm not gonna read 200 pages trying to convince me ghosts are in. <laughs> like jack henley's moved back into the flat i get it every day i don't i don't need to read a <laughs> book about it well he tries okay. to convince me he saw a ghost tree in our friend's garden mm. like four of them were doing it a, a tree would- ghost I would love to have a conversation
1: with Jack about that, actually. That sounds like a good <laughs> Well, I actually do have a spooky book that I actually oh. do think that you would like. Oh, I'm trying. I'm trying to bring you over. I'm trying my best. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to read the description of this book to you and then let me know what you think. OK, because I feel like this sounds like a Hannah book uh, by the w- And by the way, this book is called Ghost Wall by Sarah Moss. And I think I told this story on the podcast before that, like when I bought it, the clerk was like, Sigh. I just think that writer really hates men. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Wasn't it men? Yeah.
1: In the north of England, far from the intrusions of the city, but not far from civilization, Sylvie and her family are living as if they are ancient Britons, surviving by the tools and knowledge of the Iron Age. Mm. For two weeks, the length of her father's vacation, they join an anthropology course set to reenact life in simpler times. They're surrounded yeah. by forests of birch and rowan. They make yeah. stew from foraged roots and hunt rabbits. Yeah. The students are fulfilling their coursework. Sylvie's father is fulfilling his lifelong obsession. Mixing with the students, Sylvie begins to see, hear, and imagine another kind of life. One that might include going to university, traveling beyond England, choosing her own clothes and food, and speaking her mind. The ancient Britons built ghost walls to ward off their enemy invaders, rude barricades of stakes topped with ancestral skulls. When the group builds one of their own, they find a spiritual connection to the past.
0: I just, I think it just twigged halfway through you reading that. So he's like making them live like they're in the ancient Britons. Mm -hmm. Like that episode of Wife Swap. Are they homeschooled in this as well? This I mean this sounds great. I this is not a ghost like I would not like Yeah has anyone read that book where the kid, the boy, he picks up the rusty gauntlet at the castle and then he goes back to King Arthur time? Mm, Mm -hmm, Loved that. mm -hmm. Loved that book as a kid. Great. And then there's like this other you like any book where you kind of go through mist and then you end up in some kind of like medieval or magical world, that's Mm -hmm. not ghosts. That's just that could happen. That I believe in. That you believe in. Yeah. I think mm, you that, I yeah, think yeah. you would like this.
1: Um it's a very short book too. I mean it's like almost a novella, I think.
0: No, that sounds amazing. I yeah, want to join the an like anthropology it. course to reenact life in a simpler time. So moving on from um my dream match. I feel like I've just been millionaire matchmaker with that book. Neve recommended Fell by Jen Ashworth and Jordan enjoyed The Girls Are Never Gone by Sarah Glenn Marsh and Into the Drowning Deep by Mira Grant. And Megan thinks we should check out Cemetery Cemetery Boys by Aidan Thomas. The descriptions for these books are all really good. Lauren, I think that you would particularly like All the Girls Are Never Gone because it's about a paranormal podcaster. And
1: that's pretty much my next career just picked out for me
0: right there, right? Wait, can I recommend one? I have a yeah, recommendation. Yeah, yeah, of course. I don't know what the author's called, though. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Folk and the cover has a yellow on it. Okay. But it's real spooky. Mm-hmm. Mm. You,
1: there you go. You were like, it's
0: good. Yeah. Yeah. It's like someone's writing, it's like made-up folklore and it's okay. all very, like, dark and weird and And then it's, like, generational, so the stories build up on each other. But it's really spooky and really atmospheric.
1: So the following books were recommended by multiple people. So these are some popular ones here. Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno-Garcia, which we've talked about that book on the podcast before, as well as Elizabeth Gaskell's Gothic Tales, always a favorite around these parts. Edith Wharton's ghost stories, which I have just started reading. And um, yeah, they are fantastic. Breaking news. (laughs) Edith Wharton is a really great writer. I don't know if you guys knew that. She did win a Pulitzer Prize. So I guess that's really old news. Um, (laughs) Laura Purcell and her neo-Victorian spookiness also came very highly recommended, including The Corset and The Shape of Darkness. And I do want to give one last recommendation from Eileen Ann, because it's a really good one. And it's for the women's weird anthologies that are published by Handheld Press. These are edited by literary historian Melissa Edmondson, and they are a collection of weird, spooky fiction by 19th and 20th century women writers like Mason Clare, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, and Catherine Mansfield, they are really affordable, too. Like, I purchased the first volume on Kindle for $5. So mm. highly recommend those collections. And I will post some links on our social media if you want to
0: read. You those. know, I need more of a I need more of a slip in than that. Come on. So <laughs> but, are up the skillet, Lauren. OK, OK.
1: Also, you can find Melissa Edmondson on Twitter. She does a really cool um 31 days of like women writers who write weird like horror fiction mysteries and all that good stuff. And I constantly retweet her on the Twitters because it's good content. And where can people find that, Hannah? Where
0: do they where do they find that? <laughs> How's that? You can find us. That was good. That was a that's a buttery skillet. Um you can find us as always on instagram and twitter at bonnets at dawn you can email us bonnets at dawn at gmail.com you can find us on facebook by searching for bonnets at dawn and you can buy our book why she wrote from wherever you buy books pretty much like just if you can buy them you can get it not like a second-hand bookshop like a like a shop, a shop where you could order a book you know a like you can't you can buy it in a like book. a restaurant but no. like a shop where you can buy a book would yeah a would shop where it. you could order a book yeah
1: mm-hmm. on the internet you could do Amazon if you really wanted to but you know we prefer bookshop.org or you could buy mm-hmm. directly from the publisher Chronicle or Abrams Chronicle you could do that yeah